Welcome back to This Film Not Rated, a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast. I'm Curtis. I'm Eric. And we're here to talk about the movies we watched this week with full spoilers and with a twist on the podcast formula. On this show, there are winners and losers. The loser is the person with the most points. Eric, how do you get those points? Well, you can either claim a subjective opinion as fact, like 60s and 70s horror movies are the best horror movies. Or you can say something subjective and either take the point, like, uh, 60s, 70s era horror movies are my favorite. Or you can take 60 seconds or so to support the reason that you formed your opinion using objective details, avoiding the buzzer, citing Psycho and the impact that it had on audiences, and Alfred Hitchcock and the mind that he had on audiences in the 60s that led to different adaptations in the 70s and some of the work of John Carpenter leading into the 80s now. But 70s taking some of the shock value, Hills Have Eyes, Wes Craven, Criterion Collection, landmark differences in shock value and all the changes and originality of things that you hadn't seen seen before pushing a genre into something that we're now aping off of the commercial value all the way up to something like scary stories to tell in the dark all right so the big question what did you watch this week scary stories to tell in the dark Mm -hmm. and 2005's v4 vendetta all right uh this week i watched dawn of the dead directed by Zack schneider and um Ministry of Fear, directed by Fritz Lang. That's right. We watched that together. We're going to talk a little bit about the roots of horror. Yeah. All the way up through modern day with a little a little bit of action, adventure in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is good because we're gearing up to go into what I want to call the uh, summer splash season, which is sort of the blockbuster season mm. uh, of things that I want to do. I'm looking forward to different... Uh, waves of watching movies that I haven't seen before, like mm-hmm. The Meg... Okay. Or The Shallows, um, and Jaws sequels, you know? Right. <laughs> and kind of getting into a lot of the splishy, splashy things, uh, you know, that give you that sort of fun in the sun water park. Okay. That's, that's what I was going to ask about that. Like, like I, I was going to ask, do you mean just like summer blockbuster feel in general, or like, is it more focused? So, and it sounds like it's more focused. Right. Like, you, you wouldn't technically count Indiana Jones, except for maybe the uh, second one. Um, but you would count Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. Like all three, five of them. (laughs) Oh, good lord. Um, (laughs) I almost forgot the number of movies there were. So, yeah. So, we'll be getting into that a little bit later. Uh, not in this episode. But there was a thing that I wanted to point out before we get started. Okay. Curtis, this is a rule that might be established. Because you and I have a crutch phrase. Yeah. Now, the point of this podcast is just to follow the simple rules that we set forward for the listeners. But I noticed that we continually catch ourselves saying it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Quote unquote, it's interesting because. Now, I feel like for you and I, it's safe because we know that basically the rules are you don't want to qualify good or bad. Mm-hmm. Now, I can say The Room is interesting as a movie. And that doesn't necessarily tell you whether it's good or bad. But I think you and I are leaning on that as a crutch, as a, like a phrase to sort of... Get around? Band-aid, you know, <laughs> when we would normally be saying something we're qualifying. Okay. So, if you or I say it's interesting three times in a row, we oh. get a point. Oh, shit. 
We have four movies here. So. Just you and I. Guests are exempt from this. So now you've learned to cheat for if you're on this show that you can replace every opinion you have with it's interesting because. Okay. But you and I, if we say it's interesting three times. In one podcast, right? <laughs> in one podcast, then we get a point. Okay. How does that sound? I think it's fair. All right. Well, let's get down to it. So for people who may not be familiar, this is another Criterion release that you wanted to get into. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we struck gold last episode with finally finding a um, a way to word this question. So, yes. Curtis, what made you want to watch Ministry of Fear this week? What made me want to watch Ministry of Fear was uh, really by the work he did with uh, M. And so Fritz like, Lang, the director. Yeah. Yeah, with uh, so like I the first movie yeah, by Fritz Lang I I, I ever saw was M, uh, and it's that movie in particular is Peter Lorre's first starring role or at least one of his famous ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the movie that got him noticed and eventually got him hired on in in Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much. It wasn't too long after you know M that he got that role. Uh, and so, then he ended up in the Maltese Falcon mm. and all kinds of American success. Uh, yes. Until he appeared in Aladdin being parodied by the genie. Robin Williams <laughs> genie. So yeah. Uh, so when I got Ministry of Fear, I actually thought it was going to be a German film because uh, Fritz Lang is a German director. I didn't know he was a multilingual director. So I was very surprised when I saw that Ministry of Fear was an American no, no, it wasn't American. It was a European film, I want to say. Though, like, the big thing that stuck out to me is I saw a lot of hallmarks or what could be precursors to uh, noir at, at the time. Because it was, like, bleeding into that with the way it was filmed and the subject matter that it was going with. It was darkly lit, but it was also dark in tone. There was this organization that was kind of working behind the scenes. It was like a shadow group that was uh, run by Nazis. And so you get kind of, like, this post-war feel that you get from a lot of other noir movies and then go ahead. let's talk about fritz lang and the term legacy okay um ministry of fear i have not looked this up i have not researched this but may sit at a turning point in film history okay um fritz lang is famous for having directed metropolis one of the earliest epic scale sci-fi, um, and I mean epic in scale in terms of production, you know, like yeah, no, like 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 how Ben Hur is is an epic, yes, but it's also what sort of tagged the public's mind, like like view of Fritz Lang as someone who directs with the style of German expressionism. Okay, now German expressionism. Uh, all the way back to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is like basically geometric shapes and set design to distort reality. Heavy shading, heavy shadows. A lot of people credit this style as being influential on post-war, you know, uh, Hollywood shifts. In, you know, you have classical Hollywood before then where you have... Straight on camera shots, traditional editing of the time before mm-hmm. you had like Citizen Kane and things like that happen. And, but Fritz Lang is a German director who, who came out with this like heavy stylistic, and if you've seen Metropolis, you know what I mean, like uh, vision for storytelling. Mm-hmm. And 
Ministry of Fear, he is credited for bringing that sense of style to the movie, at, but having sort of grown past it. Right. But what hasn't happened yet is noir, the genre, mm-hmm. which still has never been locked into film history as as a quantifiable thing. Not the same way that horror or comedy right. or a romantic comedy right. is. So there's not like a, a, a set starting point for film noir? There's not even set... Um, like It would be hard to argue Maltese Falcon mm-hmm. or Double Indemnity are not, noir. you know, like iconic examples of noir mm-hmm. pointing to that and saying no it's not technically you would you would probably be criticized for saying something like that mm-hmm. but a few of the staples that pop up are the post-war paranoia mm-hmm. you come home after a long time of you know struggling to trust things because you've been involved in war times and the home you return to is not the same one that you left you can get caught up in a conspiracy. There's a femme fatale who leads mm-hmm. you down a path of twists and turns and a mystery that tends to right. need to be solved. Hiring a private detective. Some of these little like iconic things that will come to be staples of what people see as film noir mm-hmm. are all over this movie pre... Before that became tradition. Okay. And this isn't based on like a Pulp Fiction novel or anything like that. Not so that this I, is... Yeah. This is this is different, and this is early examples of how that would work, and it kind of speaks to how when Fritz Lang does something, mm. the world kind of follows. So, yeah. yeah it's so, interesting because, you know, that's <laughs> no, one. There we go. So, then, um, like, the main character is... He's a character that I th- would think I had seen many times before, but then you have this lead character who's supposedly in this pre-Noir movie that the first time you you see him, he's being released from a mental asylum. So, as the viewer, you don't know his his uh, mental state or what he's going through. So, everything that happens to him throughout the movie is in constant question, and so that that adds a sense of suspense to the entirety of the movie. Which is interesting because you don't know who to trust. You don't know how fabricated it is. Oh, I said interesting. That's too okay. Okay. So, and I I want to point out two movies on the timeline mm-hmm. to give you a sense of it. Um, in modern day, Jacob's Ladder. Okay. Unreliable narrator. Right. And then go back to Cabinet of Dr. Caligari before that. Okay. There's an element in that movie of was it all a dream? Okay. What this movie does different to all the ones that I think you're talking about, because I haven't seen Jacob's Ladder or the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, it is later revealed that this guy's suspicions were completely true and completely based in in reality. With yeah. with, with most uh, unreliable narrator stories, you don't get that set confirmation. There's always that lingering doubt, no, no matter what you do. With most unreliable narrator stories, the point is that, oh no, I found out they're unreliable. Yeah. Like um, A Beautiful Mind. Okay. Russell Crowe. Uh, he is, you know... The whole time he's engaging with these people, he's supposedly breaking secret codes for the government and working in secret for the government. Mm-hmm. Until at a certain point, it's pointed out that he's fabricating these people and this is a disease that he has. Yeah. Um, um, what's it? It's a Scorsese film. The, uh, Shutter Island. Shutter Island. There we go. Shutter Island. This movie and Shutter Island... Mm-hmm. Shutter Island is like a sort of grit and dirt version... Of this movie, where the protagonist actually just turns out to be a protagonist. Yeah. 
It's like without the twist of Shutter Island. <laughs> yes. Although I will say that the ending of this movie, where Shutter Island's ending made me feel scared and shocked, mm-hmm. this one made me laugh very, very hard. Yes. That is a fact. That is a fact. Because cake. <laughs> the entire story of this revolves around cake. Yeah. The trauma of this man's life revolves around cake. The whole starting point of the movie where he actually he goes to this lady, accidentally says the key words that she's supposed to give the right weight of the cake to. And so he unwittingly gets a cake that leads down down this. And then it's... it's See, a lot of people attribute that factor, mm-hmm. the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time, Yes, to Alfred Hitchcock. And still don't know. Because, influence on influence on influence. Yeah. Um, you could say you see it in, in M a bit, too. Because the whole... No, you can see it in M a bit, but I'm kind of pointing out that it's interesting, even in like a textbook that I have of film history, that... Staples of auteur theory. Said I said times. it three times. Interesting buzz number one. Ah, <laughs> mother fucker. Anyways, when teaching auteur theory, Alfred Hitchcock is one of the people that like schools point to the most. Right. A staple from that book is the wrong man archetype. Okay. It's like, and um, uh, you've seen North by Northwest. I have. It's, it's, that is completely, the, 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 the whole movie is a case of mistaken identity because, and then that's just, just, that's, that's just it. Yep. And it, it's, I, I wouldn't even call the entire plot of Psycho. Uh, pulled into the wrong motel. Yeah. That right. the whole story is, is a different story. It's by happenstance right. that it becomes the story of this rear window. Same thing. Rear window, wrong place at the wrong time. Like, it's it's interesting that they lock this in as him mm-hmm. when Fritz Lang. You you have seeds of influence. Like it's it's one of those movies where you just you look at it and you see a time and a place in history where they made this directly when the world was really dealing with mm-hmm. World War Two. Yeah. Zack Snyder made a remake of George A. Romero's uh, famous Dawn of the Dead movie. And James Gunn took a pass at the script. Dawn of the Dead, George A. Romero's, takes a bit of a lighter tone to it. Once the zombie threat is dealt with within the mall, they have free, free reign, and you're just with these characters as they have a joyride throughout the mall. And nothing really picks up again until the end of the movie. The zombie violence feels so immediate, threatening, and dangerous in yeah, the it, remake that... I don't feel like you have the same emotions in relation to the slower moving zombies and the special effects okay. work and the gushing and things like that. All right. The remake is kind of like what we saw in, because we, we haven't talked about this. It's with, with the remake of Night of the Living Dead that was directed by Tom Savini. You have the same concept done by a different director with a completely different feel. And Zack Snyder has a very different way of directing and framing things than George A. Romero does. So the movies have, have a naturally different feel and tone. With uh, Zack Snyder's Donna the Dead, it's a bit more structured. You start out 
in a hospital and you're starting to hear things about what's going on on the outside. Someone comes in with the bite. Uh, I, I have to go home. It's date night. Uh, once it's the next morning, girl from next door is standing there. Zombie attack, first time. And you still don't know what's going on. It's just the new thing that, that, that that's happened. The last shot within the neighborhood is the main character played by Sarah Pauly. I want to say her, her name is at uh, her neighborhood as it falls into complete chaos. The, the opening of Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead is one of the most talked about sequences in modern horror. Mm-hmm. From there, it becomes escape and then it goes into the mall at some point where you meet these characters. They start to lock down and characters who initially seem to be reflections of the original characters. Yes. Like, uh, you would think the Roger character is the, the guy that they meet from the other group. The Roger character, actually, actually I think, is a very different person. I think mm-hmm. the person who's who's supposed to be the Roger counterpart, if there are those counterparts in this movie, I think it's the security guard with the big mustache, the, the Tom Savini mustache, is what I'm going to call it. Mm-hmm. That guy took me a bit by surprise, because I thought he was going to be the guy who is going to be the hindrance to the group once they get there. I, uh, but as the story goes on, they, he actually gets, I think, the most development because... I, I agree with you. To put it simply, he, he moves from trying to take charge of the whole situation to learning to kind of work together. Yes. And you introduce other characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the original, when these other characters are introduced, it's sort of like they spill in and it creates a fall and a climax to the movie. Mm-hmm. But with this story, it's almost like explore, you you bring in avenues to explore more aspects of different people who would have been in survival mode. Yes. There is a lot. There are a lot of things going on in yes. this version of this story. Uh, with the the neighbor, the guy across the way. Yeah. That they're in they're interacting with. Um with the but for the most part i feel like the original dawn of the dead mm-hmm. is sort of a situational exploration a lot of george a romero feels like situational exploration yeah you put an event that you had an idea for in the lap of a few characters mm-hmm. and you decide what they're going to do the house the mall and the underground bunker Yes. Okay. And not just that, but then in the crazies, you have a small town community, mm-hmm. and you explored many different levels. The same problem is in their lap. How does each different one handle it? Okay. In Dawn of the Dead, in the original, the idea is to get really personal with the characters that are there. That's the idea. Yes. But this one seems more aimed at exploring... Not necessarily multiple levels of society, but many different aspects of which types of human beings would survive in which ways. Okay. I I can see that. And so it just feels like it has a different purpose to it. Which, if you're going to remake something... This is where I do agree with you. Like, it it tries something new that the the original did did not do. It's not just a carbon copy remake like... uh, Psycho with uh, with Vince Vaughn as Norman mm-hmm. Bates, where it's literally a shot for shot re- uh, we, a remake. We, we could we could do <laughs> we could do an entire episode just on that because honestly, 
the intention behind that, and it's funny, every everything seems to come back to Zack Snyder. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting. I'm, I'm so curious how that man's legacy is going to be 10 to 15 years down the road. Because everyone likes to dismiss him. Mm-hmm. But Zack Snyder made Watchmen so that no one else would. Because he read Terry Gilliam's version and he was like, have you read Terry Gilliam's version? If I don't make this, it's not going to be Watchmen. It's going to be some adaptation of Watchmen. Oh. When a studio was flirting on the table with remaking Psycho Mm -hmm. and Gus Van Sant got an offer for it, Mm -hmm. he's quoted as saying, I mean, well, if I don't make this, someone's going to remake Psycho. Right. As some other commercial thing. Right. Wasn't his motivation for remaking Psycho to show that you shouldn't remake Psycho? Pretty much. Right. That's that's the gist of what he talks about when he talks about remaking that movie. Okay. And it's, it's funny because there's arguments to be made that he takes stylistic liberties with a few things and transitions and all that. And, okay. You know, making it in color and all these kind of things. But one day, we're going to have to sit down and do that because I, I also would love to talk about Psycho 2. Okay. Uh, I've never seen Psycho 2. So that'd be, that'd be fun. So, you know, there is so much in Dawn of the Dead to think about in terms of what horror meant in the 70s when Dawn of the Dead came out mm-hmm. versus what appeals to an audience now and having a different take on the same thing. Right. Like, owning both of those versions of that movie mm-hmm. is owning two different movies. Yes. The, the last thing I'll say about Dawn of the Dead is... Everyone points to Dawn of the Dead, the remake, as A, an example of how remakes could and should work. Mm -hmm. And points to it as an example of Zack Snyder has the ability to make a movie. And now Army of the Dead is coming out. Yes. Which everyone is hyped about that second trailer and how things are going to work. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you have James Gunn or the same writing team and the same restraints in that corner. And I'm very curious how the public is going to react to it. Right. There's definitely something unique about watching two different people's uh, takes on us on the same concept. Scary stories to tell in the dark. I have not seen this movie in, oh, two, three years. When did this come out? Two years, 2019. Two years. I haven't seen this movie in two years. Yes. So, um, how to talk about this without, without qualifying anything? Uh, the horror community is divided on this movie, opinion-wise. Well, the 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 structure is is there. It's an anthology story that isn't an anthology story. That is a good place to start. Sarah Bellows is a horror creature mm-hmm. whose method of being a supernatural horror creature is writing stories that trap victims mm-hmm. so that you get an avenue to play out some of fan favorited uh creature designs and uh short stories from the book series scary stories to tell in the dark yep uh, very famous for its artwork. Guillermo del Toro came in as a producer to work with the creature designs to make sure they reflected that artwork. Um, I can't speak so much to some of the more practically designed, uh, you know, the scarecrow, the lady who lost her toe, uh, and the versus the jangly man. Mm, yeah. Uh, how he moves and things like that. I, I will just speak to that they're different mm-hmm. and that they feel different. The choice to make this set in uh, 1968 uh, and have it be like 
Vietnam just before Nixon is elected. Mm -hmm. I'm not entirely sure what the purpose of that was other than having the movie not have cell phones. Because it seems so thematic. You know, there's an entire character arc about him dodging the draft and then committing to service. Right. And there's a lot of design in the music they choose, in what people are watching on TV, to kind of remind you of what is going on socially at the time that these these events are happening. Right. And yet... I don't know if maybe there were supposed to be a, a scenes devoted to giving the person who was attempting to drive, dodge the draft. Mm-hmm. Um, if there were scenes devoted to him not wanting to risk his life mm-hmm. for a cause and then deciding to. Because he has sort of a personal fight with the jangly man. Yeah, like, from my memory, it has to do with his brother. I can't remember entirely. Yeah. But, like, his brother went to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Or, so, like, I think it's been a while. And then, like, the, the jangly man is kind of like, if I'm remembering this right, how, how he sees his brother viewing him nowadays. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the horror comes from, is, like, the, the disappointment. Mm. But I could be getting it wrong. I still haven't seen this movie in forever. It's they they really tried to give a lot of detail and substance to a story that would link all of these anthology stories. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is very familiar to 60s and 70s horror concepts but with the aesthetic of 2010s horror. Yeah. And so I almost feel like if they committed more to the aesthetic of 60s horror yeah. and 70s horror right. i haven't seen a whole lot like, like the post only... psycho right the only 60s horror that i think i've seen nope uh two i've seen uh rosemary's baby and i've seen night of the living dead uh yeah i mean i, I just feel like that the supernatural horror wave or whatever wouldn't be as prominent mm-hmm. until the exorcist i don't think probably not no but the filmmaking techniques of that whole thing, you know, I might understand the purpose of some of the choices of pacing and storytelling that they made. And I feel like the designers wouldn't have relied so much on modern aesthetics. Right. And, uh, you know, creature designs and, and choices for CGI. I feel like it would have pushed the aesthetic in a different direction. That would have made it a product that is different from other modern supernatural horror products, like a Conjuring installment or something yeah. like that. Um, but I, I do want to talk about the creatures to an extent, because there are a couple of creatures in this movie that, that the slow walking woman in the red hallway that gets Augie, I think. Mm-hmm, the smiling pale woman. Yes, that one. Like That creature felt like it was actually there. And it was... It was actually there. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Is like one of the few practical creatures mm, in the no, movie. No, they did a lot of practical. Uh, the 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 character that they were prominently reliant on CGI for was the Jangly Man. Yes, and you can see why because that character has to make moves that are 
you know, expensive to do with animatronics and mm-hmm. has to, you know, different pieces of its body have to move independently of one another. Right. And I don't know how much time they had for the production to arrange puppetry and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff for this sort of thing. Okay. But the uh, scarecrow mm-hmm. and uh, the woman with her toe and the pale-faced woman, um, the spiders out of the cheek are, for the most part, CGI. Okay. Those are the things that got to me and it's a personal thing like they're the ones that got me like spooked as a kid the most mm-hmm. never heard a story like the jangly man i've heard several stories that are similar to the woman who lost her toe mm. halloween aesthetic is very prominent yeah this is a movie that if you want to watch it around halloween time they're going to play season of the witch you're going to see pumpkins it's going to feel fall because you know that's what they did with the set design mm-hmm I feel like if you watched Halloween 2018, the way the family interacts with each other with a lot of written humor, mm-hmm. you get a similar vibe of humor. And I think a lot of people reacted negatively to like the peanut butter on my penis comment or the <laughs> peanut butter and jelly uh, sandwich between the police officers mm-hmm. in the 2018 Halloween. I feel like oh. you have some of that with a kid trying to dig his phone out of a toilet or trying to, you right. know, or I don't think it was his phone. I think he was actually trying to get, you know, whatever. Um, and the, him and his sister, you know, bullying one another playfully, you know, I, I feel like you have that. And you also have a staple of something that I haven't seen in a long time, which is a bully who seems like he needs a therapist. I mean, I guess you get this in like It Chapter 1 and 2, but, you know, he's like, get out of the car. And he's sweating and he looks like he's going to you know, go to jail. Mm. And then you have, you know, somebody call him off. And it's a, a situation where because it's an anthology, you don't get to spend quite as much time with them. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they had taken out the sequence with the pale woman and just gotten the information that they needed from the blind woman who knew Sarah Bellows. If they would have had a little more screen time to develop that bully's relationship with his family. Okay. And before he disappeared, so that you understood maybe what was happening. Because the community goes out in a search party looking for this kid, and he's on, like, their... He has a letterman jacket, you know? Mm. So it seems like this small-town community lost someone that everyone, like, thought had, like, dreamed... Like, a future. Uh-huh. That's what the whole movie sort of felt like. There were hints at who these people were yeah without you getting to really live with and be with the people you get hints that the lead actress is has a strained relationship because of what happened with their mother with her father who's from breaking bad he's uncle hank he is isn't he oh wow right and he's in there and he's you know performing concern for his daughter but not much happens in the story between them i want to see a sequel to scary stories to tell in the dark i wouldn't mind seeing a sequel because i feel like the tease of scary stories to tell in the dark is that the characters who have been taken Mm -hmm. are not confirmed to be dead yeah like they they, it's it's directly implied at the end of the movie like even verbally, that that there's that there that there's a way to get these people back. I know there's a way to get them back. I just have to find that way. And I feel like if you were to structure this around them having to 
explore the families of the people who left and you need Mm -hmm. something personal to them in order to get them Mm -hmm. or you needed to in some way develop the relationships that they have because Mm -hmm. you know augie's sister is is alive and Mm -hmm. i i just i feel like the structure they tried so hard to develop a world around the anthology that they wanted to tell yeah and then you now have an open table to do something with it. Right. And then like, you have plenty of other creatures to, to fill that out. Like, they, they, like oh, there, there's a way that you could go about doing it. Like, I think the way that I would like to, to, to see them go about this, the book has some sort of supernatural, um, uh, natural power has a way to, to shape the real world around them. I wouldn't mind seeing the main character find a way to, like, actually go inside the book and have the anthology sprawl out that way as in like like her exploring the actual pages of the book but her living it and as she gets deeper into it she experiences these different stories she finds the so people sort that... of, it's sort of like they teased at the end of it she is split off reality wise from him yeah. and takes the place of Sarah Billows to experience yeah. her story kind of like I'm, I'm thinking kind of like the page master oh it's an anthology story it, it's one it's one kid who goes through multiple different stories and meets these characters along the way and so 2005 we had not the Wachowski sisters directing James McTeague is the director I've heard that name before the screenplay was developed by the Wachowski sisters so V for Vendetta James Purefoy originally did most of the role of V until Hugo Weaving took over. Okay. Um, Natalie Portman shaved her head, and that's why in Star Wars Episode Three, when they did reshoots, there's Mm -hmm. a sequence on a balcony where she looks like a skeleton. Which Um, which movie came out first? Uh, In uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or this one? League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So this is the... Second of... uh, This is the first Alan Moore adaptation to come out after he disowned Hollywood and became infuriated at the concept of his work being adapted. But this is the second Alan Moore film to be adapted into a Hollywood film. I don't think so, because I think Swamp Thing was based partially on his run, like the older movie of Swamp Thing. Um, And his run of Swamp Thing is like the most famous... I think adaptation. Of course of it. it is. Alan Moore's mind is. Mm. I, I I can't talk about Alan Moore because I will be buzzed too much. Okay. And not always for good reasons. Okay. I'm looking at you, the Lost Girls, and <laughs> yeah. So anyone who knows the Lost Girls, what what the Lost Girls is, is going to laugh at that. I think. May, maybe maybe people will defend it for for liberty of. I've never know. read it, so I don't have an opinion on it. So. Yeah, I'm not gonna. Anyways, V for Vendetta is a story that came out when I was of age to be like, oh, cool, The Matrix. And continually, the more that I watch it, the more I I just think time is doing the story a Mm -hmm. service. Uh, the relevance of this reaches beyond. I mean, well, let me, let me, let me give you my breakdown of V for Vendetta. Sure. A government mm-hmm. creates an illness 
in order to make people subservient and follow government law Mm -hmm. and curfews and different protocols to, you know, take control of things. And everyone, by and large, doesn't trust the media because they know it's controlled by the government and feel like it's giving them something that, you know, is dishonest. Okay. And there is a survivor of the experimentation that happened when they were creating this virus Mm -hmm. who is going around to the original developers of this virus and the vaccine, the cure that made it, Mm -hmm. and killing them. Okay. It's borderline, could have been a slasher movie. It, um, you know, or it could be The Crow, or it could be, you know, so many different stories, but instead of following the vigilante... We're following a bystander. Yeah. Uh, we're following Natalie Portman. Little Evie. Bit. Evie. That was it. There's just so much weight to what's happening. Mm-hmm. Because I think in 2005, we didn't really think of any particular government as being as oppressive as this. Okay. But very recently, China... Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, even more so Russia and obviously for the last 50 years or so Cuba, uh, you know, we have, and then during the last presidency from the government, there were a lot of claims of this sort of oppression, you know, like of mm-hmm. media oppression, like as if media were the people behind it all trying to keep things a certain way. V considers himself not a person, deliberately expresses that he is an idea. Ideas are bulletproof. That he lives behind a mask because beneath this mask would be a face, but it would not be him. Evie Mm -hmm. is his reminder that he's human. Yeah, I think so. It's almost explicitly what he said. I mean, this is... My gift to you in the end was for her to do this thing. Right. How he... She kisses his mask Mm. because that is the real him and she embraces him for what he is okay you know the 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 sequence that i always sort of dissociated from the rest of the narrative Mm -hmm. is evie being trapped in prison by v right as a trick this sequence Mm -hmm. to show her what he went through and he knows what that's going to do to their relationship and he knows that that's going to do the damage that it does, but the idea is that it's somehow going to... I don't know, he gives her some truth in a lie. Yeah. I mean, he did. Like, what what he did to Evie was he had her live through his own experiences. Through 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 the time, more specific. Minus the experimentation. Minus the experimentation. But, like, the torture, the confinement, everything that made Evie what she was after... Mm-hmm. He was done with the experiment. It gave Evie perspective, but also, like, gave her resolve. And so here's the thing that's not reflexive increasingly of reality, necessarily, even mm-hmm. though people are afraid that it would be. The whole reason behind creating this virus mm-hmm. is to put themselves in a position of power where they can say all of this stuff is the result of godlessness. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to become puritanical. And, you know, if you're gay, we're going to black bag you and murder you. If you're in any way not in tune with beliefs Mm -hmm. that you are going to be ostracized, considered part of the reason why disease came to this country and you're going to be executed. Okay. And there is something about facing that level of oppression that eventually a person 
is driven to finding purpose in standing against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, it's a V's character to a T, I would think. It is. Yeah. He finds his identity. He finds his identity in standing against it. Yeah. But then the rest of the world finds purpose in it. And that's why some things that feel unrelated and originally, I have to be honest with myself, to me felt heavy-handed initially, mm-hmm. uh, which is a negative connotated thing. It's not how I feel now, and so obviously I feel like it's more positive. So, uh, is the little girl who is spray-painting the symbol and is shot down in the streets. Mm, I forgot about that. Oh, well. And uh, the thing about that is it feels like heavy-handed, like, oh, this government is so horrible, but the importance of it is it only takes one small act to expose and create, like, a lightning rod behind people who feel oppressed to understand what they feel like is truth. Yeah. And I feel like we are seeing so much of people believing that. Now, like, in the but, last year or so. Like, that was pretty much all of last year. So you have this underlying belief about, from a, a group of people, mm-hmm. that the world isn't right in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And then you have singular, standout, individual moments that charge that lightning rod. And then, by V for Vendetta, you have a horde of people walk out in a black cape, black hats... And an anonymous mask, which is actually a Guy Fox mask. I know. I'm just being extra. <laughs> and what they do is walk. Yep. That's it. They just stand there. They, they walk and they, they they walk up to Parliament. They stand there. And while they're standing there, Parliament blows up. Yes. Completely unrelated to what they're doing, but still with them fully showing support for the action. Yes. And... There, if that movie came out today, there would be so, so, so much discourse and, and so much to unpack about the purpose and the writing behind it all. It seems to me like V, the character, has this kind of like disillusioning effect on the people that he comes into contact with, uh, specific, specifically towards the government. So like you have an, an actual government agent who is working for the, for the government and the more he learns about V, the more he comes into contact with V, the more disillusioned he gets with the, with this, uh, with this, um, entity that he's working for. Well, that's the key. And everything is, is unfolded gradually. Yeah. But the simple nature of it is, is the, uh, leader of the government, mm-hmm. uh, one of the primary talk show hosts, and a few key people who are filthy rich mm-hmm. got rich off of the cure for a disease they helped create when they were in different offices. Right. That's it. V knows this secret. He is central to it. He's the only survivor of this group of people who knows what they did. Right. And that's why when you get to, when he gets to these people alone, mm-hmm. they're exposed. Right. There's only standout scene to me. In the movie, I, I always think about is there's one of his targets that, we, yeah, that, um, who 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 is the only woman in, in in the group who willingly accepts the fate that V has chosen for her. Uh, she, I, I I can't remember the exact. I killed length. you five minutes ago. That. Is it going to be painful? No, no you'll drift off to sleep. Right. So thank like, you. Mm. 
like that's the it's one of the scenes that has that that I don't think I'll ever forget from that movie. And it, it's it's well, there's people actively praying on like praise and predator and prey right. on the populace based on their uh, beliefs and their status, and then there are people like that who basically resign themselves to not be a part of the public eye and have to live with the decision that they made and the consequence of the decision that they made. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me wonder about people involved in the Manhattan Project. There's just so much. And and I think, I feel like sometimes this movie gets what I call the Fight Club treatment, where yeah. people see at face value the idea that your government... Uh, Government should be afraid of their people. People should not be afraid of their governments. Yeah, that that that's a core theme throughout the entirety of V. And I feel like that is a, a statement that has such little judgment either way mm-hmm. that anyone watching this can think it's just about their right to stand up against an an a system they feel is unjust. All right. Um, but you know, in the context of the movie, he's speaking to the distorted order of things. Yeah. You know, like, we need structures to function as a society. Right. People who are put in charge should be the people that we trust right. to be in charge. It shouldn't be yeah. a situation where anyone's afraid of anyone. No, right. Like, like and that's, that's the weird thing is, uh. And that's an opinion. That's, yeah, no, like, you know. I, I, I don't think V, like, I, I don't think V himself is, is against the structure. I think he's against the people who have placed themselves in the structure. And I think he, I think he is very much against. You think structure. so? Because but again, we're getting into our opinions on this kind of thing. yeah. But like, they, 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 uh, we so can talk about that afterwards. That's fine. Uh, um, it's just the Fight Club of it all is that people believe that Fight Club is about somebody rebelling against the system, and uh, you know not having to live and rely on commercial products, and everybody wants to be Tyler Durden. Mm-hmm. When, by many accounts, and by the arc of that movie, there's an argument that can be made that the purpose of that is that. Tyler Durden is an overcorrection, and that in order to live maturely in a society where you make change, you have to, you know, accept, yeah, you know, more than one truth, and you have to accept consequences for things that you do, and and it's sort of like a, a clockwork orange sort of you want to live this disastrous youth and tear down what came before to build something new, mm-hmm. and then you realize, whoops, I tore everything down. What do I? Where do I start? <laughs> Yeah, and so people watch V for Vendetta and they think, "Oh, this could apply to America," and people watch V for Vendetta and think, "Oh, this can apply to my government." And people watch V for Vendetta and they think, "Man, I need to rise up and I need to revolt against something." Mm-hmm. And I think they miss some of the point. Um, I think they miss some of the core of ideas are bulletproof. Um, that when you devote yourself to something, it's grounded in truth mm-hmm. and knowledge, not on suspicion. It's when you suspect something and then someone reveals it to be true that your belief pushes you yeah. in this direction. And it's somebody like V to be, V is not that different from Batman. Gotham is corrupt. Yeah. Batman comes in as a symbol to put fear into the people in Gotham Mm -hmm. and is a symbol for everyone else to believe that the corruption of Gotham can be tackled. 
Batman doesn't kill in Vendetta Wood. That's the difference. But I wonder how Batman would be looking at a Holocaust camp with Nazi soldiers. Like, nah, I'd better just knock them all out, including Hitler. You know? <laughs> yeah. Don't I wonder. Know. You know? It's... At which point, I think, I feel like someone like Batman would just be like, well, then I'll go enlist and I'll go about it through structure. Yeah. I don't know. It's... It's something to think about. It's just that yeah. a lot of people, I think, say, oh, V for Vendetta, like, oh, it's such a bigger deal than people give it credit for. And I, in some way, just wanted to speak to that. Yeah. And kind of point out why, even if I can't quite find the right words to explain it. But when you watch it, it's sort of, we talked about this before in Moonlight. Okay. Societal issues that mean different things to different people. And there are enough different people in this movie, you know, to to see how it affects people on different levels. The little girl, her family, you know, the, the guy who works for the government who is gradually shifting his mind. Yeah. His partner, by the way, is Lestrade from the Sherlock BBC show. Hmm. Uh, actually, there's a lot of... <laughs> a lot of recognizable British actors in that that I didn't recognize when I was that age. Because, okay. you know, yeah. I was that age. But, um, you have Evie. Mm-hmm. And Evie has her own personal emotional experience that you can recognize and empathize with. Yeah. And you don't have to think about all these big issues. You just have to think about what Evie's story is. Yes. That, yeah. I feel like sometimes people get lost in the details. But yeah. in the end, mm-hmm. the fact that the story is aligned through camera work and sequencing mm-hmm. with Evie, not V, that he is the secondary player in her life as opposed to her being the love interest in his life as mm-hmm. the vigilante. Right. You gain a unique perspective on what otherwise would just be a darker R-rated superhero movie. Yeah. Okay. Odd choice of movie to end on, but mm-hmm. still, um, you know, I I like exploring these kinds of things. So, <laughs> no, that one doesn't actually count. But um, thank you all for listening. Uh, we are this film not rated. I am Eric, and you can find me at High Contrast FLM on Twitter. I'm Curtis. You can find me at Nineties Gamer Four Hundred Seven on Twitter and at Merrick Underscore Tainment on Twitch. And uh, remember, we are a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network, so if you go to themusiccitydrivein.com, you can find all kinds of other entertainment. Uh, Thank you all for listening, and we hope to see you next time. Fucking ghosts. Ghosts.